Uh, hello there. Welcome. And welcome to another brand new show here on the... I'm going to stop doing that voice now. Welcome to a brand new show here on the Silver Screen Podcast. This is hopefully going to be the first in a recurring series uh, that I have uh, decided to launch. Um, just an idea that's come to me. Uh, and it's basically a, a sort of spin-off of... Uh, the Silver Screen Podcast, in the same way as the now wildly successful Cult Classics has spun off and now has its own day and uh, is going from strength to strength, which you love to see. Uh, so yeah, this basically is my idea of a similar thing, which is rather than Cult Classics, to look at cinema classics, because we spend our time uh, looking at more modern films and films that are related to things that are coming out in cinemas. And yeah, it felt like we were neglecting a lot of the classics. So my thought was... We're going to look at uh, in this series at cinema classics, which basically means any film released from the birth of cinema to around 1979, and it'll perhaps be a little bit more academic than you're used to from the uh, the reviews and stuff of the the other two, uh, the Silver Screen and the Cult Classics podcasts, um, with the sort of view as to why the film is popular, why it's regarded as a classic, as well as giving our own two cents as we review it, and uh, yeah, chipping in what we think about it, and obviously giving our usual scores at the end and our thoughts on the film favorite characters, etc. you know, all that good stuff that you probably will be used to if you're a regular viewer slash listener to the podcast. So <clears throat> because this is a sort of soft launch of a whole new thing, uh, we don't really have a guest as such here, but I am thankfully joined by my usual regular co-host, DK. Welcome. Hello. Hello. He is looking at you, kid. <laughs> <laughs> People are going to start to uh, to wonder about our relationship, seeing as you've put Ilsa and I've got Rick up. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it could have been worse. You could have been Victor. At least you sent me off with a different guy. Yeah, <laughs> spoiler. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's it's good to have you here. Thanks for helping me to launch this uh, DK. Uh, we do have guests coming up, by the way, audience, in uh, future episodes, if and when they do happen, which I'm hoping to. I've got plans for it, and uh, if, unless this feels in spectacular fashion, we'll be seeing some more and I'm looking forward to kind of doing it because, I, you know, being a, a, an ex-film studies student, I do enjoy looking at the classic cinema and there's a lot of my favourites that, like I said, we didn't previously get a chance to to talk about on the podcast that we can hopefully maybe uh, look into with a bit more depth. So as you will have guessed by our conversations and the various things on screen, the film that we're looking at today is going to be Casablanca, the classic film from, uh, I believe, 1942 uh, was the release year. And uh, we will look at that, but first of all, uh, in an idea that I have brazenly stolen from my co-host, DK, I'm going to come to you before we start talking about uh, anything specific and get into Casablanca and say, with the provisos that I've given as regards cinema classics, do you have a favourite cinema classic? I think I might know, because you may have already let slip to me in private, but just curious, uh, what would you say is your favourite classic cinema movie? Uh... There's quite a few, but I'm going to go for what I now call Old Faithful. It's something that it's it's become a tradition every year. We watch it around Halloween, and I love, love Capra's Arsenic and Old Lace. That's what I was thinking you were going to say. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's fair enough. It's a film I haven't seen, but it's from the era of those that I, I tend to love if I do watch them fresh, so... Certainly looking forward to catching that at some point. <laughs> yeah, I'll take your recommendation. Um, I won't give my own. It's, it would seem a bit biased, but suffice to say, if we're covering it in the Cinema Classics here or upcoming episodes, I probably love it. And you'll see from the reviews that I'm going to give. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, right. Then with that out of the way, uh, I'm going to jump straight into our review. Uh, well, 
review and general kind of explanations and bits and pieces about Casablanca. I have got a script and everything ready for this episode, so hopefully it won't sound too stilted. I'm going to try and keep it conversational, but I'm learning as I go. As I say, this is the first episode, so... Uh, you know, if, if you like or dislike anything, feel free to ch chime in in the comments or on social media. Let me know what you would like to see, what you don't think might be working as well, etc. Uh, so, yeah, as I say, we are looking Get rid today. of that co-host. <laughs> no, I, I need the backup. That's not happening. <laughs> That's what you're going to say. No, <laughs> I need the safety net. So, yeah, anyway, uh, just jumping in then. Um, I have bits and pieces that I'm going to go as we kind of look at the individual sections, uh, which, which we do in our reviews. As I say, we keep it quite loose. We I broke my note into sections that we normally do, like writing, plot, directing, uh, VFX, if necessary, music and sound, etc. Uh, and I've got notes kind of in facts and figures rather than dumping them all at once to kind of chime in with on those. And again, like the regular Silver Screen podcast, if the conversation goes a different way, don't have to stick rigidly to the notes or to the categories. <clears throat> but before that, I will start with a little bit of an introduction because... You know, not everyone, weirdly enough, has even seen this film as, as I was uh, discussing it with people offline and various potential guests and stuff. So let me just say that uh, Casablanca is a timeless classic set against the backdrop of World War II. <clears throat> Excuse me. It focuses on an American expatriate who must choose between his love for an old flame and helping her husband, a Czechoslovak resistance leader, escape from the Vichy-controlled city of Casablanca to continue his fight against the Germans. Released in 1942, I was right, during the height of the war, this iconic film directed by Michael Curtis unfolds in the exotic city of Casablanca, where complex characters navigate love, sacrifice and political intrigue. Starring Humphrey Bogart and Ingrid Bergman, the film weaves a tale of romance and moral dilemmas, leaving an indelible mark on cinematic history with its unforgettable dialogue and memorable scenes. Uh, the story originated from a play titled Everybody Comes to Ricks, written by Murray Burnett and Joan Allison. The play was never produced on Broadway, but Warner Brothers purchased the rights to it in 1942, uh, back when they used to actually make movies. <laughs> the studio <laughs> then adapted the story into the legendary film we know today. The screenplay underwent various revisions during production with contributions from multiple writers, including Julius J. Epstein, Philip G. Epstein and Howard Koch. Despite the challenges and uncertainties during its creation, Casablanca emerged as a cinematic classic, showcasing the collaborative efforts of talented individuals in the Hollywood industry. The film won three Academy Awards in 1944, including Best Picture, Best Director and Best Adapted Screenplay. The movie reflects the wartime political climate, addressing themes of sacrifice and resistance against the backdrop of Nazi-occupied Europe. Although it wasn't initially expected to be a success, the film has become so iconic that a few notes of the featured song As Time Goes By now form part of Warner Brothers' introductory studio logo, uh, which you'll have probably heard, I'm sure. Uh, Casablanca is available on multiple formats from VHS to 4K. It is included as part of a 4K box set of five classic Warner Brothers movies or in the UK as a three-disc 4K Blu-ray steelbook loaded with extras including a full-length documentary about the history of Warner Brothers and a bunch of goodies like postcards, lobby cards and a reproduction of the full original press booklet which I can thoroughly recommend as yes I do own it. So yeah, <laughs> but, uh, suffice to say it's available in multiple other ways. I think I've got it on DVD somewhere hidden away and I have Blu-rays and 4Ks of it in these formats and uh, yeah, I'm sure there's plenty of people potentially listening who probably have it still on old videotape and whatnot. Hopefully not the colorized Ted Turner version, though, uh, which I'll uh, I'll jump into and uh, just talk briefly about that. Because there's a couple of controversies I wanted to mention before we get into the uh, discussing the film, which I just thought were interesting and worth noting. And uh, you may know about them, DK, you may not. So let's see. <laughs> OK. So, uh, Casablanca was part of the film colorization controversy of the 1980s when a colorized version aired on the TV network WTBS 
1984, MGM United Artists hired Color Systems Technology to colorize the film for $180,000. Uh, when Ted Turner of Turner Broadcasting System purchased MGM UA's film library two years later, he canceled the request before contracting American Film Technologies in 1988. AFT completed the colorization in two months at a cost of $450,000. Turner later reacted to criticism of the colorization, saying, Casablanca is one of a handful of films that really doesn't have to be colorized. I did it because I wanted to. All I'm trying to do is protect my investment. The Library of Congress deemed that the color change differed so much from the original film that it gave a new copyright to Turner Entertainment. When the colorized film debuted on WTBS, it was watched by 3 million viewers, not making the top 10 viewed cable shows for the week. Although Jack Matthews of the LA Times called the finished product state of the art, it was mostly met with negative critical reception. It was briefly available on home video. Gary Edgerton, writing for the Journal of Popular Film and Television, criticized the colorization, stating that Casablanca in color ended up being much blander in appearance and overall much less visually interesting than its 1942 predecessor. And uh, Humphrey Bogart's son Stephen said, if you're going to colorize Casablanca, why not put arms on the Venus de Milo? So Russell T. Davies and producers of Doctor Who take note. <laughs> I will say about that. Uh, yeah, and the second controversy, when the award was announced for Best Picture, which Casablanca won, uh, the producer Hal B. Wallace got up to accept it, but studio head Jack L. Warner rushed up to the stage, uh, quote, with a broad flashing smile and a look of great self-satisfaction, unquote. Uh, Wallace later recalled, I couldn't believe it was happening. Casablanca had been my creation. Jack had absolutely nothing to do with it. As the audience gasped, I tried to get out of the row of seats and into the aisle, but the entire Warner family sat blocking me. I had no alternative but to sit down again, humiliated and furious. Almost 40 years later, I still haven't recovered from the shock. And this incident led Wallace to leave Warner Brothers in April of that year. So, yeah, Warner Brothers, Jeez. not uh, great. That turns out historically. <laughs> the more things change. Mm -hmm. The more they stay the same, indeed. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, yeah. Before I jump into anything else and uh, sort of look at the, uh, the breakdown of the film, DK, as we normally do, I'm going to ask if you can recall... The first time that you saw Casablanca, what was your first experience of it, and maybe what was your initial impressions of the film? Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna really disappoint you here. Uh, this, <laughs> not seriously, this is the first time I've been able to sit through the entire thing. Okay, uh, I I'm going back several years now. I did own this. I was one of the people that did own this on VHS. I worked for a I, I an unnamed, I will not I will not mention the, the name, uh famous <laughs> or used to be famous high street stationer chain in the uh in the UK hall and you know make of that what you will. You know who I'm talking <laughs> about, Mike. Oh, and uh, <clears throat> they were having a uh a sale. And I managed to pick up uh, a collector's edition of the VHS. I'm not sure if you remember it. It was a huge black box set, and it had the movie in with the tape, and it had a beautifully illustrated uh, hardback book along with oh, it. Okay. And I picked that up, and, yeah, I got it home. I believe I started watching. I'd watched the first 10 minutes and then I got called to do something because I was uh, in a house share at that time and that was it that was <laughs> that was as far as I got I never got back to it the the box set remained in a wardrobe somewhere I think in order to keep it safe I gave it to my parents and they put it in a wardrobe somewhere and that's the last I remember seeing of it uh no idea what happened to it, but yeah, I do. I do. I am sad at the fact that I've I've lost it 
So, yeah. yes, flash forward, uh, you know, at least, I would imagine, 20 years. And, uh, yeah, it came up for this. And as Mike will no doubt confirm, I had a hell of a time finding this. <laughs> uh it's it's not easy to get hold of. Uh, on, on it's not easy channels. to stream. It's easy enough to buy, but it's not easy to stream. Yes, <laughs> yes, and uh, yeah. So you know, in in a in what is no doubt a disappointment for you and any other cinephiles that are listening to this, this is actually the first time I've watched wow. this through. Well, at least you have watched it. Like I said, several of our uh, potential guests and the people in our Discord have never even seen the film, which is a shock to me because it is so kind of uh, iconic. And I mean, I'll be using that word a lot, but it really does apply here. I mean, um, I was talking to uh, Adrienne on our Discord, who's often a guest on the podcast, and she said, oh, she wants to watch it and she's going to give it a go, but she has never seen it before. And I says, you feel, you'll probably feel like you have seen it because it's been referenced in hundreds of other places so exactly i'll here. tell you what it is i'll tell you what it is my experience and i i presume i'm not going to say i'm not going to you know presume to talk to everybody but i will presume for a great number of people that it because it is referenced because the lines are so iconic because some of the scenes are so iconic and as you say the music as time goes by we've all been mm. exposed to so many clips and so many quotes over the years that you feel like you've seen it, even if you haven't seen it. So when it comes time to actually, first, you know, for an example like this, and you say, okay, we're going to look at this movie, you suddenly think, crap, I really haven't seen it. Whereas for the most part, in your mind, in your mind's eye, you automatically, when someone mentions Casablanca, you go, oh, yeah, that iconic, fantastic film, I, I know it by heart, and you've never seen it. And I'll, I'll be completely, like that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I'll be completely honest with you. The closest I came to seeing this is watching the Red Dwarf episode, Camille. <laughs> I actually looked that episode up because it put me in mind of it, and it yeah. is surprising how close the dialogue at the end of that episode is. <laughs> we'll always have parrots. <laughs> the problems of two blobs and a droid don't mean a hill of beans <laughs> in the creative universe. <laughs> yes. Oh, I love Red Dwarf. Yeah, but I was going to say, I mean, it's been referenced not only in everything from like Red Dwarf to Animaniacs, but there was a video I found on YouTube that I ended up going down the rabbit hole and watching, and it was like 25 minutes worth of references just from other movies. And there was like a couple of Woody Allen films. There was When Harry Met Sally. There was a few um, even like Korean movies and stuff that referenced. And then La La Land obviously has a few sly references to it and stuff, and it's like it is part of our cultural identity and our zeitgeist, even if you haven't seen it. Like I yeah. said, you'll, you'll probably get the sense that you have. And I, I do implore you to, to give it a look if you haven't, because, yeah, you, there's a familiarity to it, perhaps, that you, you might sort of think, oh, I've seen it all before. But there is bits in it that I think you will appreciate, even if, you know, you've seen a lot of it in passing. Without um, giving too much away of my thoughts on the movie, it was not what I expected. Having right. had that that kind of uh, situation foisted on you, where you do think, "Oh, I know this." Yeah. When I sat down and watched it, I suddenly realised I really didn't know this at all. Yeah, that's fair. That, that's hopefully going to be the idea of kind of examining it and uh, maybe awakening a few other people to the fact that yeah, you might not uh, actually know it or even remember it all that uh, all as well as you think you do. Because just to give you sort of some background about my experience, I bought Casablanca on DVD 
uh, from a different high street chain than the one you referenced, uh, just because it happened to be on sale because, you know, the older movies tend not to be as popular. So it was on sale for a few quid and I picked it up thinking I'll have it in my collection. Never got around to watching it. And then one Christmas Eve about, let's see, 10 years ago, maybe it was on TV. And I was like, oh, I'll watch this because, you know, we're, we're not doing anything. We're getting ready for Christmas and everybody was either asleep or elsewhere. So I sat down and watched the full thing. And then there was a documentary about the making of it and the key scenes that came on immediately afterwards. And so I ended up staying up till, you know, past midnight on that particular Christmas Eve, just weirdly obsessed with Casablanca since <laughs> I'd actually sat down and watched it. And was like, you know, that's actually really good. And I enjoyed the bits and pieces, but... I have to say, even then, like I'd, I'd watched it then and then I watched the DVD again to get myself kind of like, oh, was it as good? Yeah, it was very good. And as I say, I've watched the um, a, a Blu-ray that I had of it. And now I've watched it on the 4K that I've, uh, well, twice actually on 4K, once on the Steelbook set, once on the other set that I've got. And yet there is still things that come to me that I've either forgotten or just didn't register with me the first time I watched it. It's one of those films that you hear, it's a cliche, but you kind of notice things, new things about it and new layers every time you watch it, or I do anyway. Um, and I really appreciate it for that. And uh, yeah, I will say the first time I watched it, there was almost nothing that stuck with me other than a few of the key iconic moments that we'll talk about, which is, you know, there's a couple of major things towards the end that you, it's hard not to uh, to have registered in your brain, but there's so much more. And I will, let's see, I'll talk about it when we get to it, but uh, yeah. <clears throat> I, uh, and again, I won't spoil my thoughts about it because we'll get to that at the very end of the movie or of the, of the review. Sorry. So, um, but yeah, how did you find the uh, the experience of watching it? Because I will say it's it's a rarity because I think it's what an hour and forty minutes long as well, which for today's sort of uh, movie goer is is practically you know brisk. <laughs> yeah, it's it's almost like watching a Looney Tunes short, although you know <laughs> not 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 as wacky, obviously. Uh, yeah, it's. It was surprising, and it's surprising to me how much that they managed to fit into such a, as you say, what for modern audiences is a short runtime. Yeah, exactly. Uh, speaking of Looney Tunes, by the way, one of the features that are on the various versions is a Bugs Bunny cartoon called Carrot Blanca, which also uses very slightly adapted versions of almost the exact dialogue. So if you've seen that, you may also know the thing that you've seen in the film. It, it's very odd because apart from this and... Uh, the aforementioned Arsenic and Old Lace, the only time I'd really experienced Peter Laurie was in Looney Tunes cartoons. All right. <laughs> Remind me again, Peter Laurie plays in this film? Oh, I can't... Ugart? Ugart, uh, that's what I thought. Ugart, that's what yeah. I thought. That was one of the clips from the, the Woody Allen film. I forget which film it was, but Woody Allen's character says, oh, I, I'd, I love to believe that I'm Humphrey Bogart in Casablanca. I'm actually Peter Laurie. And I was like, oof, relatable. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah not a fan of Woody Allen as a person but occasionally he does write some you know some very on the nose dialogue so yeah um yeah fair enough so uh what we'll do then I'm going to jump straight into the uh the first section here that I've got written down which would be the acting just because it's the first thing I've got I have a couple of things just about the main actors that I, I want to kind of let be known and then we can talk about our thoughts on the acting if that's okay with you DK yeah that's fine mate uh, first of all, Humphrey Bogart's iconic line, he is looking at you, kid, is said four times in the movie, but was not in the draft screenplays at all. It has been attributed to a comment that he made to Bergman as she played poker with her English coach and hairdresser in between takes. So that was entirely Bogie's contribution to the movie. And again, now has become iconic, I guess. So, uh, yeah. yeah. 
Ingrid, uh, Ingrid Bergman's portrayal of Ilsa Lund in Casablanca became one of her best-known roles. In later years, she said, I feel about Casablanca that it has a life of its own. There's something mystical about it. It seems to have filled a need that was there before the film. Uh, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, what are your thoughts on the acting? Starting, obviously, with the... Uh, I suppose the, the, the main trio would be where you should start because they're always the ones that are credited and uh, mentioned first. So the aforementioned Bogvart, Bergman, and uh, is it Paul Henry, who plays, uh, I think, uh, Laszlo in the movie? Yeah, I, oh God, I, I'm showing so many gaps in my uh, my film knowledge here, but <laughs> I, I, I am not kidding. This was also the first Bogart film that I've seen. Right, and it maybe it maybe the only one I've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay, okay. I'm a good company now. Uh, yeah, yeah. I. It's hard to break it down into categories for me without giving my thoughts of the entire thing away but i am going okay. to say that bogart was a revelation obviously mm -hmm. he's as iconic as the movie is and he's always held up as one of those you know those classics from maltese falcon and is it the mm -hmm. big sleep and that kind of thing? but i'd never actually seen him in african queen i'd never seen him in a movie Never seen him in a movie until this, and he deserves every bit of his reputation. The, yeah, I, <laughs> I completely agree with you. I think it's uh, we we have an image of him because you know that was the era where movie stars had cultivated images, and we think of him even if we haven't seen the movies of this man's man, this kind of you know gravel voiced smoking. Everyone does an impression. Ah, hey kid, I'm gonna be, and yet there's several moments in this where he displays a surprising vulnerability like he gets genuinely emotional and really kind of breaks your heart and i was like for a you know a, a man's man actor in the 1940s that is huge <laughs> there, there is a surprising surprising number of levels and it's not just to rick's character to a lot of the characters in this and i was completely shocked i mean i, I don't want to be facile about it but as a as a modern moviegoer, you tend to look back on movies from this period and before as kind of primitive almost. Like mm. they don't have the subtext that you get in movies these days. Like they don't have anywhere near character development that you do. And so wrong. So, so wrong. Yeah. I, I was <laughs> just blown away by, by his portrayal. Mind you, not just him, pretty much everyone in this. And the the... I, I, I'm not going to go any further because, as I say, we'll we'll get to yeah, it. Yeah. But yeah, I, I think enough. his portrayal was fantastic. Bergman, she had a, a I'm, I'm not just going to say a vulnerability because she she wasn't just there as a damsel in distress. She, yeah. had, but again, with the 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 quotes that you've heard, the clips that you've seen, that's all you expect her to be. So when you see her, uh in certain scenes in this she's just she's just fantastic and for some reason again going going on to laszlo with regards to the clips for some reason i got it into my head and maybe it's camille again that laszlo only showed up towards the end of the movie <laughs> it, it's yeah. just you know so to find that he's he's there he's right in the thick of things all the way through and uh what, what's the actor's name again sorry Paul Henry, I believe, probably pronouncing it wrong, but I think that's that's my best attempt. <laughs> he's 
he's so good. He's so good. That's mm-hmm. to me that he's as much, you know, and I'm sure some people say that's sacrilege. He's as much a leading man as Bogart in this. I was oh, completely yeah. we... take, taken by surprise by that. And some of the most iconic moments are given to mm-hmm. uh, to Victor Laszlo. And completely I, agree. Uh, yeah. I just can't fault any of them. <laughs> yeah, and going back to what you were saying before, it's surprising because you, you think of films perhaps from this era as being a bit basic. And yet it's films that you may be used to from like the 90s and onwards where there's a love triangle where it feels like the, you know, the heroes have to be heroic and the awkward guy that's in the way has to have the audience rooting against them and this film doesn't even give you that comfort because Laszlo is every bit the hero and it's kind of like yeah I mean you you may well want Rick and Ilsa to be together and you may feel their relationship but there's you have nothing against Victor Laszlo at all and quite the opposite the movie makes you like it grabs you by the collar and makes you love him and sort of says, no, this is a good guy. There's, <laughs> we're not yeah. seeing the obvious easy thing of like, oh, she wants to leave her abusive husband for the love of her life. It's literally she's torn between two equally heroic in different ways men. <laughs> so, yeah, if, well, yeah. I mean, if anything, as, as it goes, Laszlo is the, the bigger hero out of yeah. the two. He's, he's like the in-your-face type hero. He's... You know what you what you would say the Captain America. I'm sorry, I'm, mm. I'm you know we're talking about a classic here, and I'm using modern terminology. But yeah, I know what you mean. Though he's the kind of the Boy Scout hero as opposed to the one with any like moral depth, or because I, I would argue that Bogart is arguably more heroic because of what he actually has to overcome and the nobility that he has to, the selflessness he has to portray. Without getting too heavy into spoilers, um, but again, it's a different kind of heroism than because you know there are occasions when. Rick Blaine is a bit of a bastard. You know, his treatment yeah. of women other than Ilsa is not ideal. No. <laughs> um, but again, you, that's kind of like, it, the, the nice thing about that is that, again, for a film in 1942, that lead character actually has an arc. He grows, he changes. We see why he's, you know, so cynical and why he's he's moody and seems like he, you know, doesn't stick his neck out for anybody, doesn't want to take sides and whatever. And we learn it and we kind of feel, I don't want to say justified, but we understand when we see that it's all basically stemming from his relationship with Ilsa and the kind of the, the tragedies of all that chiming in with the same time as the, the the war and the invasions and stuff. But by the end of the movie, he has found his place and he has decided to, you know, not only that, he's also pulled another less moral guy into his kind of moral crusade with him. So yeah, it's, pretty cool. it's, it's lovely. As I said, that uh, I think people will be surprised at Rick Blaine or Humphrey Bogart's character because he does have that depth. And he does, yeah, he's not straightforward one way or the other, but he's, it's that moral complexity that makes him fascinating to watch. And like I said, he he will make you feel that you can understand him and his emotional levels aren't just, this guy's a jerk because he's moody all the time. There's there's occasional real moments of, you know, of breaking down. A couple of things that I wanted to note would, from that was when he kind of breaks down with his head in his hands and kind of cries on the night when he's expecting Elsa to come back and she doesn't. <laughs> Yeah. basically was surprising and it's a kind of a line as well but i kind of love the moment when he's uh he's telling sam to play you know uh, as time goes by and sam won't and he's like oh if she can take it i can just play it. Like, yeah yeah that's really good you know but that's i mean that's the thing when when i went into this my overriding impression that nick uh sorry rick is just going to be all attitude and uh shadows mm. Yeah. And 
you do get that. Don't get me wrong. You do get that. Mm. You get so much more. And I think it's done such a disservice to have those aspects played up over the years. Obviously, you have, you know, the, 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 um, again, we're using the term iconic, but you have those scenes that in any clip show they play, as you've mentioned, that you played it for her, now play it for me, and uh, the end scene. And, you know, you, you have all that. So when I went in and I saw, you know, the odd clip of him sat at the sat at the table and it's just him and Sam in shadows, I thought, oh, it's just it's just gonna be this. I'm subjecting myself to something I'm not gonna watch. But he has so much depth to the character and it's there's you just scratch the surface with these clips and yeah. I think if anything, it's popularity has undermined what is actually in the film itself. Yeah, I think it's a case of his celebrity image overtaking what's actually, like, his work, if you know what I mean. Because, like I said, that, that was the era where the movie stars were, you know, in big, bold quotes, movie stars, and they had their image to portray. And the majority of the movies you mentioned that he was in were kind of gangster movies or, you know, um, things where he had to play a hard nut character or, or just be pure tough. And so that was kind of the image that he'd cultivated. But as you said, I think this film shows that he has got a lot more range than that. I mean, from he actually does really good drunk acting, which is never easy for anybody, by the way. Um, he, 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 does, he doesn't, you know, he doesn't do the typical, you know, who came later, Dudley Moore, staggering, slurring speech kind of thing, which Dudley Moore did fantastic with, don't get me wrong. But he, uh, yes, he does play a very good person he he just he play overly imbibed well yes and like i said it's believable it's not over the top it's just kind of like you feel for him but the other thing i wanted to say just the last thing on bogart would be that in terms of the range it's amazing that he is to me a completely different character in those flashbacks um to the point that the script even uses the different name like he's richard and he even says yeah. at one point oh i'm richard i'm back in paris again now is that what it is when she kind of comes back to him you know richard not rick but it is amazing that he can differentiate so much between those two characters, the kind of happy, in love version of, of Richard, and then the sort of cynical, world-weary Rick. You know, it's it's a great performance. It is. It is. It's it's like night and day, and it's almost I mean, you can see kind of the scene at the train station where he mm. does kind of become Rick rather than Richard. And mm -hmm. it's 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 certainly had a depth of emotion that I never expected. Absolutely. Even to the point where he clearly regrets, like, when he's, you know, he, he's doing his character, this kind of Rick thing that he's cultivated, and he effectively, you know, calls Ilsa a whore, <laughs> more or less. Like, yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm not one of the kind of women that tells. And then you can just tell he immediately regrets it and wishes he hadn't said that thing. And, that you know, that was the, another final push for her because, as you said, she's not a damsel in distress. She doesn't just sit there and take it. She's like, no, that was hurtful. I had an explanation for you. Now you don't get it. You know what I mean? Because you don't deserve it at this point anymore. Um, yeah. Like, okay, I kind of like that this woman's stands up for herself. You know, so, uh, there will there will be complaints, I'm sure, from people who say that she kind of doesn't have any agency in the final decision, which I kind of disagree with because, you know, it's it's a tricky area, but I feel like, you know, it's kind of hard to take to give her and Rick both agency in that moment. But I kind of I'd like to see it personally as they're both making that decision rather than just one of them um and you know ultimately we could talk about it when we talk about the ending but that's a different matter for a different uh, moment and uh yeah 
But in terms of Bergman, because we kind of we have, we're talking about her now, I will say, like you said, she's just got such a screen presence. It doesn't hurt that she is, you know, if if I do say so myself, absolutely stunningly beautiful. So, and the yeah. the director and the kind of camera people all know this. So there are several shots where it's just her face in close up, and they're all stunning. She she absolutely is like you know holding that screen, and you just look and think this is a an old fashioned movie star beauty. You know, <laughs> it's kind of yeah. I, I fully believe it, and I can believe how uh, you know Rick and even uh, Laszlo would fall for this woman. Um, oh, definitely. Yeah, there's there's depth to that performance as well. Like you said, from the flashback to the kind of she has to portray this difficult, tragic. I'm in love with two men, and I don't like one more than the other, and now I'm this is my predicament. And again, it could have devolved into cliche. It, it could have been hokey, and it never is. I think you really do, or I personally really feel the actual pull. Of, of both sides from her and the actual not knowing what to do one way or the other and and the actual you know you, you get the sense she is being torn apart to not knowing what decision to make and you know outside factors influencing that one way or the other as well so yeah, yeah. I, I, I as you say you, th you think it's and again because the, this is kind of the movie that launched all these uh, i'm not gonna homages iterations you know, straight up rip-offs of it. And <laughs> yeah. basically where all these iterations fall down is they do fall into the traps of making all these characters tropes. Mm. So when you go into this, the one that kind of kicked, that kicked it all off, you expect that from this. And yeah. it completely pulls the ground from under you because it's not like that at all. Yeah. And uh, just before, again, my last word on Bergman is, again, it, it's just to praise the film. So sorry, everybody, if you're sick of it. But just, again, it would have been easy to have her kind of leaving Rick in the flashback be a moment where the audience can go, oh, yeah, that bitch. But she actually plays that tragedy of it really incredibly well. Like, you can see it's, again, it's tearing her apart inside. And she's really, really not happy about this. Um, and even though it turns Rick, the character, like, deeply cynical, I don't think the audience could feasibly have that attitude because yeah i i don't think she's portraying at all that kind of it was an easy choice if that makes sense <laughs> yeah you see you see you actually see these these characters as real people and i think our problem is these days a lot of cinematic entertainment unless you go in you know into indie i i don't think a lot of characterization treats people as real people at the moment mm. Yeah, you're probably right. You're probably right. Um, so, yeah, any thoughts then quickly on uh, Laszlo of the third part of this kind of triangle that we haven't uh, mentioned as yet? As 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 I say, I I wasn't expecting, again, the depth of character that we got from him. I was just expecting some kind of cipher to show up towards the end and, and be all selfless and heroic, and naturally he is. But he, under this, there's you can tell there's a lot going on underneath the surface that he 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 could be as i'm, I'm going to say as erratic as any of us but he has to keep himself in check and this guy's been through a lot mm. and yet uh you know she she still kind of has that hold over him and i think this isn't there a, a line later on in the movie uh where he, oh, I, I I forgot it now, but but it 
where they bring up just how much she means to him. Yeah. And I just, uh, yeah. It, nobody, I mean, goes, it goes back no, to that last line. There's a part in there where, I mean, Rick even says, you're part of his work, the thing that keeps him going. So she is that level of importance, you know? Yeah, but until I'd actually experienced the movie for itself, I just thought it was a, a line. You know, mm. you know how people use a line just to get rid of someone, and you just think, "Okay, okay," but yeah, you, you feel it. You feel it for Laszlo in this, and yeah. it's something I'd never expected to do. Yeah, I I can't really add much else except to say that I love, like I said, that the film is brave enough to let him be a hero and not be portrayed as either too dumb to realize because Rick even comes clean at the very end about everything that's happened, and you know, even if he spins a lie, I think. You know, the undercurrent there is that they know what's going on. Oh, yeah, he he, he definitely knows because, he, he, you know, he he does that scene in the bar later where he says, you know, that you're in love with my wife and stuff. Yeah, but I mean, like at the very end when, uh, you know, Rick says, oh, I I wanted to believe it, but it was all a lie and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I don't personally think Laszlo buys that for a second, but I think he he can see that this is Rick's chance to be noble and gives him that, if you know what I mean? Yeah. But again, that's not really made explicit. That's just in the kind of acting and, and the, the hints and the writing and stuff. So, um, it, it, but it saves Laszlo from looking like an idiot, which I think would have been a, a real risk for a character that's been, that, like I said, the movie's brave enough to portray him just as a pure hero. And all of his moments that I've got that, that like stand out for me are of him doing that because he is, yeah. like you said, he's, he's running from the Nazis. He's escaped the concentration camp. And there's two key things. The first one is when, He's being questioned by I forget the German guy's name now. Uh, he's in the that's right, Strasser. He's in the um, you know, the actual cop office or whatever you want to call it in uh, Casablanca, being questioned by Strasser, and he just literally, just without any fear, just brazenly knocks him like you know, oh, you can try whatever you like, but there are people that are going to fight back, and all you know, there's not enough of you Nazis to really make an impact when people start rising up, and you're going to know about it. And it's yeah. just like you just want to sort of do that punch the air thing, like, yeah, show him, man. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and then similarly, which I'll talk about at more length probably later, because I have a bit about it, when he leads the kind of dual anthems uh, oh. in the bar, which is such a good scene. I love that. And, yeah. Oh, completely. Yeah. <laughs> I have got a bit about it, so I will talk about it when we get there. But yeah. Um, so yeah, other than that, is there anyone else in the acting that you, because obviously we've got, um, let's see, Sydney Green Street playing uh, Ferrari. It's not much of a role, but he's in there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, again, they're all they're all morally dubious, and mm. they're all. But it's it's a question of necessity. They're not morally dubious for the sake of being more. Well, I'm, I, you know, let's not go into Renault for the moment. There, there are some. Well, that's the thing. I mean, I was things. I was going to say that's that's a bit iffy by today's standards, and certainly what's implied. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Uh, but that. You get the feeling that the majority of the decisions they're making, it's just out of necessity. Everybody's here is just trying their best to survive in a world that's just, just gone mad. Yeah, completely. And you already mentioned Peter Laurie, but yeah, the, the sort of the tragic lucklessness of that character, who, again, isn't really in the film that long, but you, boy, you feel his impact. And when you hear what's happened to him off screen, even, you're just kind of like, Oof. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I would for some reason I, again, and it could just be down to the fact that I knew he was in it and not experiencing it. I was under the impression that he was in the movie a lot longer than he actually is. 
So, mm. you know, just for that short period, he certainly made his mark. I understand this. I, I could be wrong. I understand this was his bit, first big theatrical role. I think so. Um, I couldn't. I couldn't swear to it, but I think so. Yeah, because yeah. I think he went from this to again uh, arsenic and old lace. So, oh, okay, fair enough. <laughs> so you know his work quite well. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Uh, so, any other thoughts on the acting, or should I jump straight to the the writing that I've got bits and pieces about here? <laughs> I just think that there there's not. You know, we say it so often; it's it's kind of lost all meaning. But there's not one role here i think that lets lets the side down uh from from the main characters and obviously you know you've got uh louis uh strasser strasser uh, occasionally i get hints of a lower low from i'm not gonna lie but i still I think, think when i explain what that actor kind of the, the way that he's approaching that role and the kind of unfairness of it i think you'll appreciate it a little bit more oh because... fair enough yeah, the, the the fact of the matter is that just because of his accent, he was constantly getting cast as Nazis, and yet he was, you know, fiercely anti that. Yeah, so, yeah. So I think he is kind of like it's it, it's not the most believable performance because he doesn't believe it. If you know what I mean. Yeah, fair so, enough. Fair enough. Uh, yeah, uh, I do like Ferrari. I mean, uh, as you say, he's not in that yeah. not in that great a deal. But even down to the minor players, and you know, I'm specifically mm -hmm. thinking about that couple. Uh, the young yeah, couple. I was just gonna say I can't. I'm terrible with names, but like the couple that Rick helps out, which is such a great moment, or the woman who sort of really belts out the French uh, the La Marseille anthem. Yeah, gets given a moment of focus. She's really good in like a two minute appearance. Yeah, they get very minor little scenes later on. I mean, obviously they're they're there in the introduction as they're they're you know building the background and the world building, but later on you see them, and even just for small scenes. They really make an impact. And the guy from the couple, obviously there's, you know, the turmoil with the the, the young lady from the couple, and we know what's going to go on, and I presume you're going to go into that later. But the guy from the couple, just from the way he sat at the gambling table and he's losing money, and they're, ju they're just so good. They're just so good. I, can't, I, I was blown away. Absolutely. Um couple of things that have just sprung to mind. First of all, we criminally, we'd forgot to mention Dooley Wilson, who plays Sam, who is outstanding. Like, he acts incredibly well and sings even better than that, yeah. which is incredible. And, uh, again, these sort of jazz standards and everything, he plays, like, Knock on Wood or I've completely forgotten, but he plays, like, a really memorable, like, a, a well-known song at the start when he's first introduced as well. Is that um, It Had to Be You? It Had to Be You, that's the one. And then, obviously, as time goes by, and I think... There's an argument that he's the actual beating heart of the film, really. He, because I was yeah. going to mention for, for for a he is as much in a way of a hero as Rick and Victor, because he, yes, he, he he sits there and plays the piano, but he's so protective of Rick, and mm -hmm. he's he really kind of goes out of his way, even to the point where he suggests to Rick that they pack up and go somewhere just to yep. avoid the, the entanglement with Ilsa because he can see what's coming a mile down and he's just doing his very best to protect Rick. Even, you know, Ferrari's offering him a lot more money to go. To, oh, I, can, uh, to... I, can, I haven't got time to spend the money I make now. <laughs> exactly. It's, yeah, he's, he's, so, oh, he's such a great character. Such There's also great that great character. moment where he's the only one that stands up to Ilsa, where he literally says to her, just don't, just, just leave. You're no good for him. 
Yeah. <laughs> I'm just kind of like, yeah, as you say, you get the sense that he and Rick really genuinely have that bond. And uh, I know it's a small thing and it should be sort of, you know, should be taken for granted perhaps, but I did appreciate when Ferrari's trying to like buy Sam for the bar and Rick just gives you that little quick line about like, I don't trade in buying and selling the lives of people. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, for a, for a, you know, a white guy talking about a black guy in 1942, that's still dangerously close to areas where some might have been. So I appreciate that little kind of. I would <laughs> imagine it still is in, in, in certain, certain areas. Well, so yeah. Yeah. Potentially. So, yeah, it was just nice to know that that relationship isn't based on kind of, it's not a slave master thing. They're actually genuine, like, brothers and friends. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> All the other thing I was going to say is, in terms of, yeah, we've mentioned the dramatic performances and everything, but there's a beautiful comedic moment. Uh, and I, again, sorry, I forgot the actor's name, but who, the guy who plays Renault, when he has to think of a reason to, you know what I'm going to say, he has to think of a reason to yes. shut down Ricks. And I goes, love I'm shocked, that. Shocked to find gambling happening on these premises. <laughs> and the guy just walks out, you're winning, sir. Oh, thank you very much. Yeah. Oh, thank you very much. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> it's just, it's comedy genius. It's all timing. And it's just, I, I laugh my ass off every time. Yes, I can understand that. That really threw me for a loop. I was, I was kind of <laughs> creased up at that. And then feeling yeah. a little guilty whether I should actually crease up at that with everything else that's going on. But yeah, God help me, I love that bit. Oh, it's funny though. It is funny. It's played for the laugh, I think. It's a little bit of a release in the sort of high tension uh, drama moments. Yeah. Cool. Uh, well, I'm going to jump onto the writing. But yeah, despite the many writers that I mentioned, the film has what Roger Ebert describes as a wonderfully unified and consistent script, which I'd agreed with. Mm. Uh, Koch later claimed it was the tension between his own approach and Curtis's that had accounted for this. He was one of the screenwriters I mentioned, and the director, obviously. Surprisingly, these disparate approaches meshed, and perhaps it was partly this tug-of-war between Curtis and me that gave the film a certain balance. Uh, the other writer, Julius Epstein, noted the screenplay contained, and I quote, more corn than in the states of Kansas and Iowa combined, but when corn works, there's nothing better. <laughs> uh, kind of related to what you were saying earlier, the film ran into some trouble. Uh, with Joseph Breen of the Production Code Administration, the Hollywood self-censorship body, who opposed the suggestion that Captain Renault extorted sexual favours from visa applicants, uh, but also didn't like the implication that Rick and Elsa had slept together. <laughs> Not really comparable, but okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, this is one of those sort of annoying things that probably comes up in pub trivia nights too much, but uh, yeah, a line closely associated with Casablanca, play it again, Sam. It's not actually spoken in the film. It's kind of, you know, Luke, I am your father or beam me up, Scotty. It's one of those yeah. supposedly famous faces that doesn't actually happen. Uh, when Ilsa first enters the Cafe American, she spots Sam and uh, asks him, play at once, Sam, for old time's sake. When he feigns ignorance, she responds, play it, Sam, play it as time goes by. And later that night, alone with Sam, Rick says, you played it for her, you can play it for me, as we mentioned. And if she can stand it, I can't play it. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that's the two kind of fast facts that I had uh, about it. So, yeah, in terms of the writing, then, uh, we've kind of touched on a fair bit about it, but is there anything else that stands out to you that uh, you appreciated or you wanted to mention? It might be corny, but I think a lot of the uh, a lot of the dialogue just sparkles, and it's so rapid fire that it's not until it's, it's in your rearview mirror that you think, that was such a good line. Yeah, as I said, there's one of those things where there's little lines that I notice every time that I come to it that I'd never noticed before. Like um, at the very start of the movie, uh, when Ugart is kind of, you know, prowling and there's the guy, again, a little comedy moment that the guy's like, look out, everybody's vultures and he's the pickpocket. And uh, like, as the Germans are basically rounding up the suspects or whatever, I think it's Ugart or someone similar they go to and ask, do they know anything? And they just reply, we hear very little and we understand even less. 
Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, it's a beautiful summation of like the way people back at that actual time in history had to kind of turn a blind eye. Uh, you know, it's it's horrible, but it did happen. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, it, I do. It, uh, sorry. You have lines like, you know, this gun's pointed right at your heart, and he says, that is my least vulnerable spot. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, completely. But uh, in terms of like, because we will probably be able to, you know, name loads of quotes and little moments that are great. But in terms of the actual setup of writing, I think it's very good how the exposition's all dealt with at the start of the film by like a what looks like a newsreel almost about the actual yeah. events of the war and why people go to Casablanca, and then a very quick police report about like you know there are stolen things on the go, and the, you know we're looking to the Germans are looking to apprehend them, and then the way that. Ugart introduces after that the letters of transit that become so focal and they, they they should always be the audience's focus and they are even when they're not like you know right in your face uh, I really appreciate the way that it keeps that going as well uh and yeah I mean I've kind of <laughs> in terms of lines I've also written down here I love this um when this uh what's his name was speculating about Rick which by the way I love that we never get his actual background it's still kept a little bit mysterious everything that happened before uh Ilsa and Paris so when uh What's his name? Renault was saying, like, why did you come to Casablanca? Rick responds, I came for the water. It's a desert. I was misinformed. Yeah. <laughs> I love I love that. Can you manage can you imagine us in London? If when you get there, ask me. And he says, yeah. What about New York? He says, Well, there are certain sections of New York, Major, that I wouldn't advise you to try and invade. Yeah, exactly. I love that. I love that like, even though he claims he's not taking sides and he wants to stick his neck out, there is occasional moments where he does the heroic thing, like when he's um he won't let the German officers into the gambling den and says, you know, you can, your money's good at the bar, get, go for it. And so oh, how dare you? I, I should be allowed in there just like anyone else. And he goes, yo, you're lucky that you're allowed at the bar. Just go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, All right. Okay. You can stand up for you, for your uh, principles, I guess, if you, if you want to every now and then. But you and know, when, when you first meet him and you, and he is coming across like this cold hearted cynic, that line where it, where, uh, Ugarte says to him, "You despise me, don't you?" And he says, "If I gave you any thought, I probably would." <laughs> yes, exactly. But again, even like he doesn't—he's obviously no fan of the Nazis, but he also doesn't really appreciate murder. So when he finds out Ugarte's actually killed the guy, and he's like, "Oh, you're right. I now do think very differently of you, or some, whatever it is like that." Like, oh, okay. You don't like murderers either, Yeah. Um, but yeah. Um, but then, as I said, it's it's good that there's that moral complexity and you're never quite sure because it feeds into the very end of the film when he tells Laszlo, ask your wife why you're not getting the letters. And you you are, spoiler alert, you are thoroughly convinced he's going to leave with Ilsa until that very last minute. And it is it's so convincing. Like, even though I know the outcome, I've seen the film like five or six times, I'm still... I'm still somehow convinced that he's going to leave with her every time it uh, that happens. And I'm kind of like, when the twist occurs and he finally, you know, pulls the gun on Renault uh, and, you know, says, oh, this is what's actually going to happen and sends her on her way. I'm like, Oof. that seemed like a close call. But then again, you had had that great moment that we've mentioned where he meets the Bulgarian couple or the woman who's kind of willing to do anything to get out of there. And then he basically helps the guy by just effectively, you know, cheating on uh, the roulette wheel to get him the money to escape. It's yeah. Like, I, I love that there are moments that show that level of, you know, heart of gold to him as well, because I think he did kind of need that. So how did you feel about all of that? Definitely. And, and you know, obviously, 
this is my first time watching it. So even though I knew how it was going to end, because obviously it's one of the yeah. clips that's out there, but, uh, you yeah. know, up until the last And you'd minute, seen Camille. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm thinking, how you know, how is this? Because, he's, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just giving you the reaction how, as I was watching it in real time, because I honestly thought he was going to sell Laszlo out. Mm. Uh you do get those heart of gold moments and I'm glad, you know, obviously that one happened, but it was that scene with the couple with the cheating at the roulette that, that made me think, what a guy. Oh God, I'm going back to red dwarf again, but yes, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm going to be in the office covered in Tara Masalata. <laughs> yeah, that's fair enough. But uh, yeah, I won't get into it, but I will see it as well. The writing, the ending is just the perfect film ending for me. Not never been topped. Uh, so that's all I have to say about that. And that's my last note on the writing. Unless you have anything else you wanted to add, I just think it's with, with any with any film, with any film, you you the writing is what holds it up. As you've seen mm -hmm. when we've looked at certain movies from the modern era. But when you go into this with expectations. And I'll be completely honest with you, as a, a modern moviegoer, sometimes I go into these things thinking, I'm really not going to enjoy this. So when the plotting and the dialogue hold up to such an extent that you're just loving it and you're not wanting it to end, mm. you you just can't really ask for better. And I think this is one of those uh, one of those movies. That's fair enough. Um, yeah, uh, before I jump into the, like, I've got direction lumped with kind of cinematography production design, I did have a couple of separate sections uh, that I wanted to talk about as their own thing in the writing, and the first one is the kind of famous, we'll always have Paris. Um, yeah. Like I said, you'll know that line because it's become so huge, but I do love the way that, you know, it, it becomes such a focal part of the movie and the film does dedicate a solid 20 minutes to that important flashback and even, you know, the, the emotional impact of it is so felt by when he actually says that line, we'll always have Paris. We didn't, we'd lost it, but then we got it back that night. It's one of those great romantic lines that sort of hits me right in the heartstrings. Yeah. Um, yeah, I love it. And I love the way everything's directed as sort of, you know, when they're in Paris, it's all happiness and light. And and then the second that, you know, she doesn't turn up, it's chucking down right on the, on the dear John letter and everything's disastrous, you know, um, just really great. Did you have any thoughts on that particular part? I do like that they actually did the flashback and they didn't just try and revert to telling us, not showing us. Mm -hmm, exactly. I think it's partially down to the writing and partially down to the uh, the direction that mm. something I never personally expected, and you get it right from the opening with the narration and it's driven home to such an extent that these are, a, not only are these people living on the edge, but at this point, and, you know, um, I'm sorry to say it still relates to modern day, that the world itself is on the edge. Situations mm. can change just like that. And yeah. you, you get it in the flashback sequence where they say, oh, the, you know, the Nazis are on their way. They, it's, they're going to be here in a day. And you then see the uh, them coming in with the megaphone and mm -hmm. saying that, you know, they're coming, they're on the way and all that kind of stuff. And you really you really have this feeling throughout of desperation that there are good times out there, 
but there's this shadow looming over everything. And mm. I, yeah, it's, uh, it, it brought a level of emotion to it that I really wasn't expecting. It does because I think I think for us because we know that it's it's real. I mean, it's no, it's not a fictional approaching enemy. It was something that actually happened. You know, people were cornered in these places like Casablanca trying to escape, and the Nazis did chase them all around the world, and they did invade, and it was awful. You know, there was yeah. real life equivalents to to Rick, or, or even you know more so to to Laszlo and. Yeah, I think a lot of the initial success of the film was attributed to the fact that it was, you know, it, it was either during or just after the Second World War that people saw it, and because it had that real-life representation. I mean, in the... I mentioned that I've got the the original production... Sorry, press booklet uh, that came yeah. with the, like, 4K steelbook, and in the press booklet, there are so many pages dedicated to, like, the free French movements. You've got to plug it to them. You've got to have them display, have their own screening nights and everything, and it's kind of like... Yeah, you forget there's a real life thing going on in the backdrop of this movie, you know. So yeah, it, uh, and speaking of which, the other thing that we've mentioned that I wanted to briefly talk about is the the duel of the anthem sequence, which is just it doesn't get nearly enough uh, fame or legendary status, but it's so good um, compared to the end of the movie, anyway. And I will say that uh, much of the emotional impact of the film for the audience, as I said in '42, has been attributed to the large proportion of European exiles and refugees who were either extras or played minor roles, in addition to the leading actors Paul Henright, Conrad Veidt, and Peter Lorre, uh, such as Louis V. Arco, Trude Berliner, Eike Grunig, Ludwig Stossel, Hans Heinrich von Twardowski, and Wolfgang Zilzer. Don't ask me who they all played, but they were all in there. Um, and a witness to the filming of the Jewel of the Anthem sequence said that he saw many of the actors crying and realized that they were all real refugees. Uh, Harmetz argued that they brought to a dozen small roles in Casablanca an understanding and a desperation that could never have come from central casting. Even though many were Jewish or refugees from the Nazis or both, they were frequently cast as Nazis in various war films because of their accents. And I think, yeah, that all shines really through in that sequence for me. It is a, you know, when, when he, he gets up and he tells the, the band to play Marseillaise, and they all join in, and it, it is kind of a punch the air moment. Mm, completely, yeah. As they drown out the kind of German national anthem. Yeah. yeah. I love it. I love that scene. It's, it's one of the things. Like the first time I saw the film, it was it was a surprise because, like you know, like you and like everyone else, there's a lot of like I thought that oh, I've seen this bit, I've seen this bit. I knew the iconic ending and everything, but I wasn't really aware of that scene. And so when that actually happened on my first viewing that Christmas Eve, I was like, wow, this is. This has come yeah. from nowhere <laughs> in this kind of uh, famous romance. What's this about? <laughs> exactly. And it's powerful stuff. It is, and yeah. It, it, it's kind of a double-edged sword. You kind of want it to be more well-known. But if it was, when someone comes to the movie, they're not going to be a surprise. So it's, yeah, it's a it's a powerful scene. It is. I love it. And I love the, the way it's acted and uh, directed and everything. So... Yeah, not much else to say about that, just it's a brilliant scene. So moving on to, like I said, directing, cinematography and production design. Uh, the cinematographer was Arthur Edison, a veteran who'd previously shot the Maltese Falcon, haha, and uh, Frankenstein. Particular attention was paid to photographing Bergman. I think that shows, personally. She was shot mainly from her preferred left side, often with a softening gauze filter and with catch lights to make her eyes sparkle. The whole effect was designed to make her face seem ineffably sad and tender and nostalgic which explains why that was a sense I got. Um, bars of shadow across the characters and in the background variously imply imprisonment, the crucifix, the symbol of the free French forces and emotional turmoil, 
dark film noir and expressionist lighting was used in several scenes, particularly towards the end of the film. Uh, Rosenzweig argues the shadow and lighting effects are classic elements of the Curtis style, the director, along with the fluid camera work and the use of the environment as a framing device. Uh, the film critic Roger Ebert has called the producer Hal B. Wallace the key creative force because of his attention to details of production, down to apparently insisting on a real parrot for the outside of the blue parrot uh, bar. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, just random facts and things. But I think it, it says a lot about the directing and the cinematography that I kind of picked up on all that stuff before actually seeing it quantified like that. And was like, ah, yes, I get exactly what you mean. I can see that Rick's often in shadow when he's most yeah. devastated and Ilsa's almost always in the light, like this almost angelic figure. And yeah, there's a lot of uh, moody, like you said, film noir lighting and a, an awful lot of bars of shadow that are implying various things. And I think that's that's a kind of level of directing that you can get into full analysis mode, but it probably would bore most people, but you can definitely see it. <laughs> yeah, the, 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 the use of lighting and shadow in this, it's almost a character in itself. Completely, yeah. And I do think, I think personally, that's why the colorization just doesn't quite work because it needs that. The, the way that lighting was for black and white and everything. So you lose that if you colorize a film like yeah. this. So, I mean, not to be, you know, film snobbish about it, but if you do have an option to see either one, please don't watch the colorized version. It's never going to be as good. I honestly uh, thought yeah. I was going to have to revert to the color version. I don't know if you recall. I do recall. And I thought I'd find I it on like, YouTube. Yeah, I was like, oh, God, no. No, I don't want it. But if that's all I can get, I'll take it. And uh, see, the, 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 the weird thing is, I don't know if it's because of the strange setup. I went to Prime. I thought I'm going to watch it on on prime mm. and uh came up to you know search casablanca here it is it says watch it on prime click prime this video is not available in your area I'm like you bastards <laughs> yeah <laughs> it'd be like that sometimes it's one of those weird things because i think if you have um what do you call them, like the classic movies or the Criterion Collection channels and stuff, you can probably get this quite easily, but those aren't the most easily accessed or inexpensive things. And it's not the kind of film that you'd find on like your average Netflix, unfortunately. No, and this is why, this is why people stick to physical media. Yes. Yeah, 100%, because I wouldn't hate a film like this to have ever been lost, you know what I mean? And I will yeah. say the 4K, even though it's an old black and white film, it looks sumptuous to look at it really i know i say that a lot but uh it's it's something else that really does make you feel very involved in the picture when it's so clear and again, I, I will say when i did see it i mean i did i don't even have the 4k and the picture was beautiful oh yeah the director and cinematographer i think have done a fantastic job anyway so it's always going to look good but when it's fully cleaned up it's just you, you can see a difference even for yeah. a film like i said made in the 40s <laughs> so yeah um, any other thoughts on the direction or anything related to that side of things? I just, I just love the fact that it, for the majority, it all takes place in, you know, one area as such, and the director makes such good use of that space that you never get bored with the surroundings. You, you don't keep seeing things from the same angles. I just love it that he keeps it visually interesting, for the, uh, yeah. for the most part. That's fair enough. Cool. Um... So, yeah, anything else, then the, the last things would be things like VFX, which obviously doesn't really apply here. We've talked about, uh, you know, what the, what you could do in the 40s, and there's no need for special effects, but no, camera but effects and things were... Uh, I were will cool. like, I, I do like the, 
the establishing shot at the start where it shows the uh, yes. the plane coming into land over the sign for Rick's Bar. I, I had no idea that uh, Rick's Bar was in such close proximity to the airport. And <laughs> Even I think the way it's... that the kind of the, the plane takes over what looks like a model globe and stuff, there was something that's been copied by film so much since. Oh, yeah. You don't realise it actually began with Casablanca. That was the first time it had been done, you know? Yeah. It's... Uh... Yeah, so there's not much, not much on the FX side, but uh, but what they did, I, I think it, yeah, just done really well. Yeah, that's fair enough. And the sound and music we kind of have to mention because, as I've mentioned already, Dooley Wilson, the various jazz songs and things are so fantastic. Uh, you know, even though we've mentioned it once, they are, they are, you know, they warrant mentioning again. I think. Um, yeah, would you say the same about that or? Really? Definitely, it's yeah. it's such a memorable, a memorable soundtrack. And yeah, obviously, you only ever hear one musical number in all the clips that you see outside of it. But there's, there, I, I did love his rendition of "It Had to Be You," and I, that mm. that song's a, a big. Um, I'm a big fan of that one. So uh, yeah, see, I loved "Knock on Wood" as well. <laughs> that was good. Yeah. That was good. Yeah, I do like you know that the entire band joined in on that one. Yeah, well, everybody was. That was that's the thing. I think yeah, that's true. Rousing, like everyone in the bar was going, "Yeah," duh, duh, duh. <laughs> and uh, that is the one, by the way, that gets referenced in Carrot Blanca, with um, I forget which character, Daffy Duck, I think, hammering himself on the head with a sledgehammer to the tune of the do do do, as you would. So uh, yeah, I don't think I've got much else. Oh, in terms of the direction, a couple of very small things that I wanted to bring up. First of all, when um, it's kind of their last kiss in Paris and the audience knows and Ilsa knows, but Rick doesn't. And uh, you see the, the sheep spills the champagne to signify like the, you know, disaster moment. So yeah. subtle, but very nice. Uh, Rick's intro, he gets given the hero intro. It's almost James Bond style when it goes from like the table to the cigarette up his arm. And then it's Rick, you know, the hero of the story. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's that very <laughs> Connery moment, isn't it, from uh, it really Dr. Is, yeah. L. Yeah, completely. It's uh, yeah, and uh, let's see. Often I've said already, Paul got in the moody kind of shadow, and uh, yeah. Oh, um, when Ilsa comes at the very end of the film to, you know, to, to, to you think, you know, to decide to leave with Rick, she's illuminated in the center of the doorway, and it's very, again, angelic and kind of uh, beautiful. Yeah, uh, and just yeah, I, I love that. Like I said. Often it will portray Rick, who's the one already dubious in shadow while she's in the light. And yeah, nothing else to say, really. Um, oh, I will say in terms of uh, obviously the music as time goes by, as we've mentioned, deserves every bit of the, the sort of plaudits that it gets. And it did uh, lead to a huge surge in popularity for that uh, song and particularly for Dooley Wilson's version, which ended up, I think, spending ages in the charts after the film came out. Um, but I did notice as well that there's a very cool ongoing light motif of the French national anthem that just plays on the background of every kind of sort of patrioticish moment. Yeah, I, I, I picked well. up on that. That's uh, what a nice, nice little touch. That. Yeah. Cool. Uh, so, let me go. I think that would be almost everything except I did want to talk briefly about the ending of the film. So again, if you haven't seen it, spoilers, <laughs> because 
Yeah, uh, I, I did uh, have a little bit that I found about this, which is to say that the possibility was discussed of Laszlo being killed in Casablanca, which would allow Rick and Ilsa to leave together. But as the critic Casey Robinson wrote to Wallace before filming began, the ending of the film, quote, set up for a swell twist when Rick sends her away on the plane with Laszlo. For now, in doing so, he is not just solving a love triangle. He is forcing the girl to live up to the idealism of her nature, forcing her to carry on with the work that in these days is far more important than the love of two little people. Uh, it was certainly impossible for Ilsa to leave Laszlo for Rick because the motion picture production code forbade showing a woman leaving her husband for another man. Yay, the 40s. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think the less said about that, the better. But uh, yeah, as I said, that ending is rightfully well known and I can't fault it. There's nothing else I can see other than, I, I, you know, I've seen a lot of movies and there's yet to be an ending that has the impact that this one does or the effect. I love it. And uh even down to the last line, which has nothing to do with the the bulk of it and the whole, it's just about, you know, Rick and Louie. I think it's the beginning of a beautiful friendship. It's just a quality hit you on the nose bit of last line. And when you know that, like, you know, there's, you know, many hands contributing to this script, it is incredible how focused and together and, you know, well-oiled it all seems. <laughs> because, Definitely. Yeah, there, there was a real chance of too many cooks situation and, yeah, I think it's just it's sheer fluke that it didn't turn out that way. And not only does it give Rick a nice little, you know, payoff to his character art, but it gives Renault one too. Exactly. He also gets the chance to be redeemed, even for some pretty horrendous and heinous things. Because, again, it's a nice, like, there's a few last-minute surprises at the end of the film. And I think, I mean, I can't really speak to it because I haven't seen it as recently as you, but I think that moment when Renault kind of sees that Rick has shot Strasser and then just says, well, round up the usual suspects, and you know, dumps the symbol of the oppression, as it were, in the bin, and says, "Well, that ten thousand francs I owe you will just about cover our expenses." Yeah. Like, oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, it, it was such a turnaround because I really hated him. He had some mm. fantastic lines, and he made me smile once in a while. But my overriding impression was, "My God, this Renault is a shit." Yeah. But when yeah, the... you know the turnaround at the end, okay, he's still a shit, but he's he's more my kind of a shit now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's fairly unforgivable, the, the kind of exploitation of women. But the sad thing is, in the 40s, that probably wouldn't have been as egregious. People probably no. would have just looked on it as, no, yeah. I mean, he even refers to it, doesn't he? As, oh, you're interfering with my little romances. And it's kind of like, oh, it's awkward. Um, yeah. But, yeah, but you the add thing that is to that... the thing. Sorry, go ahead. The thing is, the thing is it, would, it would happen, and it would happen these oh, days. Yeah. And it's, yeah, this, it, it, it did surprise me that they would, for a film that, you know, was was filmed back in 43 did you say it was 42 is when it came 42. out yeah yeah for a film back then to touch on such matters i was mm. surprised at that i mean it's yeah. it's not explicit uh but no. you know if, if you've got more than an ounce of an iq about you you'll pick up on it and i'm i'm, I'm thinking my word i wasn't expecting this yeah completely um, but I will say that you, you add that to the moment which I really kind of where I really hated Renault when it's kind of he's explaining to Laszlo that Ugart is dead and they haven't decided if he was killed while escaping or committed suicide. Yeah. And I'm like, Oof. and he just says that with such brazen lack of, you know, even caring about that person's yeah. life. That I'm just like, you shit. <laughs> you, you the impression that Renault just sees everyone else as just playthings to be discarded as and when. Completely. As long I mean, as he even says, you know, yeah. that line that you said, that my heart is my least vulnerable spot, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, so that kind of deals with the, the majority of the things that 
we think about the film and stuff. So uh, what I'm going to do then, to be a little bit different than you might be used to for the cinema classics, because a lot of these are going to be, you know, classics. Uh, instead of approaching an audience, I thought it would be interesting to look at uh, what critics thought of the movie, either at the time or contemporary. So instead of an audience interaction, this is going to be the critics' response to Casablanca. I have quite a lot about it, so I have split it between myself and DK, so that you don't have to just hear one voice endlessly. And uh, DK, I believe uh, you've got the intro or the first uh, half of the critics' response. I do, yeah. Uh, yeah, Casablanca received consistently good reviews, uh, as said by uh, Bosley Crowther of the New York Times. He wrote, the, uh, the Warners have a picture which makes the spine tingle and the heart take a leap. He applauded the combination of sentiment, humour and pathos with taut melodrama and bristling intrigue. Crowther noted its devious convolutions of the plot and praised the screenplay quality as one of the best and the cast performances all of the first order. The trade paper variety commended the film's combination of fine performances, engrossing story and neat direction and the uh, variety of moods, action, suspense, comedy, and drama that makes Casablanca an A1 entry at the box office. The review observed that the uh, the film is splendid anti-Axis propaganda, particularly in as much as the propaganda is strictly a byproduct of the principal action and contributes to it instead of getting in the way. Variety also applauded the performances of Bergman and Henry and noted Bogart, as might be expected, is more at ease as the bitter and cynical operator of a joint than as a lover, but handles both assignments with superb finesse. Uh, some reviews were less enthusiastic. The New Yorker rated Casablanca only pretty tolerable and said it was not quite up to across the Pacific, uh, Bogart's last spy fest. In the decades since its release, the film has grown in reputation. Murray Burnett called it true yesterday, true today, true tomorrow. By 1955, the film had brought in $6.8 million, making it the third most successful of Warner's wartime movies behind Shannon Harvest Moon and This Is the Army. On April the 21st, 1957, the Brattle Theatre of Cambridge, Massachusetts, showed the film as part of a season of old movies. It proved so popular that a tradition began in which Casablanca would be screened during the week of final exams at Harvard University. Is, uh, is that still going on, Mike? Do you know? Yeah, as far as I know, yeah. Oh, wow. Uh, Todd Gitlin, a professor of sociology who had attended one of these screenings, has said that the experience was the acting out of my own personal rite of passage. The tradition helped the film remain popular while other films that had been famous in the 1940s have faded from popular memory. By 1977, Casablanca had become the most frequently broadcast film on American television. On the film's 50th anniversary, the Los Angeles Times called Casablanca's great strength, the purity of its golden age Hollywoodness, and the enduring craftsmanship of its resonantly hulky dialogue. Bob Strauss wrote in the newspaper that the film achieved a near-perfect entertainment balance of comedy, romance, and suspense. Roger Ebert wrote of Casablanca in 1992, There are greater movies, more profound movies, movies of greater artistic vision or artistic originality or political significance but it is one of the movies we treasure the most. This is a movie that has transcended the ordinary categories. In his opinion, the film is popular because the people in it are all so good, and it is a wonderful gem. Ebert said that he had never heard of a negative review of the film, even though individual elements can be criticised, citing unrealistic special effects and the stiff character of Laszlo as portrayed by Paul Henry. 
I've, I've just got to say, I, I disagree with both of those, but, you know, your yeah, mileage same. may vary. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, that's what I have, mate. Cool. Uh, Critic and film historian Leonard Moulton considers Casablanca the best Hollywood movie of all time. Uh, on the review aggregator site Rotten Tomatoes, 99% of 127 critics' reviews are positive, with an average rating of 9.4 out of 10. The website's consensus reads, an undisputed masterpiece and perhaps Hollywood's quintessential statement on love and romance, Casablanca has only improved with age, boasting career-defining performances from Humphrey Bogart and Ingrid Bergman. On Metacritic, the film has a perfect score of 100 out of 100, based on 18 critics indicating universal acclaim. It's one of the few films in the site's history to ever achieve a perfect aggregate score. Um, in 1989, the film was one of the first 25 films selected for preservation in the US National Film Registry as being deemed culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. In 2005, it was named one of the 100 greatest films of the last 80 years by Time Magazine. The films that were selected were not ranked. Uh, Bright Lights Film Journal stated in 2007, it's one of those rare films from Hollywood's golden age which has managed to transcend its era to entertain generations of moviegoers. Casablanca provides 21st century Americans with an oasis of hope in a desert of arbitrary cruelty and senseless violence. Uh, the film also ranked at number 28 on Empire's list of the 100 greatest movies of all time, which said, Love, honor, thrills, wisecracks, and a hit tune are among the attractions, which also include a perfect supporting cast of villains, sneaks, thieves, refugees, and bar staff. But it's Bogart and Bergman's show entering immortality as screen lovers reunited only to part. The irrefutable proof that great movies are accidents. Screenwriting teacher Robert McKee maintains that the script is the greatest screenplay of all time. In 2006, the Writers Guild of America West agreed, voting it the best ever in its list of the 101 greatest screenplays. So, yeah, fair to say it's popular, <laughs> <laughs> I would say, perhaps. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, there's nothing else we can really add to that. Like I said, this is the reason I didn't really uh, feel the need to add an audience response, because as you can see, there's always going to be one or two little dissenting voices, but the majority of that's overwhelmingly positive. So, uh, yeah, any other last thoughts before we go into our favourite things and the conclusion and score then, TK? No, I, I think you uh, just that I think you picked a, a really great one to start this this spin off with, mate. Cool, awesome. Well, you know, out of all the gin joints and all the towns in all the world, we're going to walk into our usual segment, which is the favourite <laughs> character moment and line. So uh, I'm going to come to you first and ask TK, who was your favourite character in the movie and why? It's it's a tough one. This I almost it gave is. it away earlier. It's a toss up between Sam and Rick, I and I think I'm going to have to go with Rick just because uh, it's predictable, and everybody would say this, but he's the the I guess the character I most identify with, and I will explain that a little more when we get to our favorite line. Okay, cool. I'd love to see I identify with Rick, but again, I'd probably beat Ugard. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. No, I, I would. I wouldn't kill anybody. <laughs> I'd be the unlucky guy that Rick has to help. You know, get some money together for his girl. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. My my favorite character was also Rick. I just said it's a brilliant portrayal of a complex and yet relatable character who has a real narrative arc, a rich history, and ultimately an admirable nobility and honor. So yeah, <laughs> same. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, do you have a favorite moment or scene or anything from the movie that you can uh, shout out? I have two, and they've both been mentioned. Probably the same two as me. <laughs> the first one is the uh, La Marseillaise. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And the second one is, you know, 
I'm shocked, shocked to find that gambling is going on in here. You're winning, sir. Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, my favorite moment was almost the duel of the anthems, but I think the ending is just so legendary and so justifiably so. And I was, I was like, you know, rock concert style mouthing the lines along with the ending this time when it came <laughs> up because it's so important to me and so impactful. And it was just, I just love it. I think it's, like I said, it's the best ending of any film ever. And I will fight anyone that thinks otherwise. Uh, yeah. Uh, so, what's your favorite line in the movie then? It's this. This is probably, and and you know me, Mike. So yes, uh, this is probably what makes me identify with Rick the most, and it's the uh, the one where they sat down and the questioning Rick. Make it official if you like. What is your nationality? I'm a drunkard. <laughs> so that means Rick is a citizen of the world. <laughs> <laughs> yep, that is pretty cool. I like that whole sequence actually when he's. Uh... I was born in New York, if that helps, or whatever he said. <laughs> yeah, this is what I mean. I, I know people, you know, as as we've just read in the audience responses, they say the dialogue is hokey, but I just love it. Yeah, completely. Um, speaking of which, my favourite line is just the whole last speech. Inside of us, we both know you belong with Victor. You're part of his work, the thing that keeps him going. If that plane leaves the ground and you're not with him, you'll regret it. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but soon and for the rest of your life. What about us? We'll always have Paris. We didn't have, we we lost it until you came to Casablanca. We got it back last night. And I said I would never leave you. And you never will. But I've got a job to do too. Where I'm going, you can't follow. What I've got to do, you can't be any part of. Those I'm no good at being noble, but it doesn't take much to see that the problems of three little people don't amount to a hill of beans in this crazy world. Someday you'll understand that. Now, now. He's looking at you, kid. And it's portrayed, it's performed, I should say, by Bogart just incredibly well. So, yeah, that would be mine. So, that's uh, that's everything other than our conclusions and our score out of five stars, as we always do. So, do you want to go first with this one, DK, as the kind of uh, co-host of this one? Uh, I don't know whether to let you go for... No. I can go uh, first if you want. Yeah, go for it. Go for it, mate. Okay. Again, as I always say, this is written down, so sorry if it sounds a little bit like I'm reading, but uh, I have to get my thoughts clear. Uh, I always, I just said, it's always kind of annoying when people say you should watch something because it's a bona fide classic. That said, everyone should watch this. It's a bona fide classic. <laughs> Whatever its troubled gestation was, it birthed an absolute treasure. Sparkling dialogue that's become iconic. Outstanding performances, a heartfelt and powerful story encompassing real-world events and the relatable business of love. The film has a reputation as possibly the great romance story, and I think it's well earned. The acting, script, and direction form a palpable sense of romantic longing and make a painfully believable tragic love story. But the P.S. de resistance, pun intended, is the flipping of that into an ending as beautiful, intense, and powerful as it is unexpected. The hero doesn't get the girl, but gets to be truly elevated to almost mythic hero status. It's a selfless goodness that we can all aspire to, whether or not we can say we do the same. And it truly resonates with the established relationship because real love isn't selfish. I could talk about this for hours. I could analyze the historical context, talk about the movie's important ruminations on good versus evil, and so much more. But instead, I'll just say the only final word that matters on this and give my score of five out of five. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> what are you, TK? Yeah. 
Yeah, I'm a, I am ashamed to admit it, but until this week, I'd never seen it. Uh, like everyone, I've seen clips here and there, and the movie's most famous quotes are ubiquitous whenever Hollywood classics are mentioned. But it was so in your face as a cinematic masterpiece. I'd written it off before even seeing it. As you say, Mike, you know, when someone tells you to watch something because it's a classic, the, the hipster in me automatically balks. <laughs> but I've got to say, I was wrong. This is gold. The direction and cinematography is fantastic. The performance is spot on. And the dialogue, as I said earlier, to me anyway, maybe I'm hokey myself, but it sparkles. I was gripped from the opening moments and couldn't stop until the end flashed up on screen. One thing I was not prepared for was the atmosphere and feeling of desperation in the inhabitants of Casablanca. And with all that's going on in the world right now, it's just a little too close to the surface. That atmosphere is something that all those clips and quotes did not prepare me for. And uh, and honestly, it blew me away. It might be listed as a classic, but its reputation is well-deserved. And that's why on this very first episode of this classic show, it's going to be a five from me too. Yes. <laughs> Fantastic. This is making Casablanca only the third film so far at time of recording to have achieved a perfect score of five <laughs> out of five stars as an average, which was not difficult for me to work out. And I'm thrilled to hear it because I really do love this movie and I hope that this maybe prompts more people to see it because, like I said, it's, it's sad for me to have learned that it seems to be fading out. There's a lot of people that I spoke to of our generation that haven't seen it and so i can only assume a lot of younger people haven't as well so yeah I'll, I'll be honest and... i'll be honest mate i uh after watching this i've ordered a physical copy oh yes <laughs> so uh that's why i wanted that's you to mission. go first because i knew what your score was gonna be so i thought no i'm oh, gonna yeah. give him a surprise I've, I've made no secret of my love of this movie. Like I said, I own it currently on two Blu-ray discs and two 4K discs and a DVD. <laughs> so, yeah. Oh, God. And my, <laughs> my, Mike's opinion was, this bastard likes Buckaroo Bonsai. It's going to be a two if we're lucky. <laughs> <laughs> I just hope that uh, the other cult cinema classics, I should say, go down as well. And uh, oh, it's been, I've, I've, I'm thrilled to have had a chance to talk about Casablanca and hopefully introduce it to some people if they listen to this as well and uh, to share it with you if it was the first time you'd seen it. And maybe give you a new uh, favourite film or a new one to put in your top 10, 20, whatever it is. So, yeah. Which, out yeah. of curiosity, which version did you order physically? It's it's the Blu-ray, because I don't have to... I mean, I, we've got a 4K TV, but I don't have a 4K player. So, yeah, it's Ooh. it's it's still just a, the Blu-ray, but... Uh, That's still fine. The, 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 the 4K has such a nice cover, though. I am, I am tempted just for future... Uh, I mean, the 4K Steelbook set is fantastic, I will say, and does include a Blu-ray as well. Oh, God. I'm going to be selling myself on street corners just to afford my physical <laughs> media habit, thanks to you. I will say the uh, that's how I have so many copies of the film, because the... What, what because the you're selling classics, No, the Warner Brothers Classics Collection also has it on 4K and Blu-ray inside of the box set. So, oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> Hence why I own it in five different discs <laughs> across three different places. <laughs> So, but yeah, I mean that steelbook set is just—it's gorgeous, and the the extra Blu-ray really looks intriguing because it has, like I said, the history of Warner Brothers, which I really should watch at some point. <laughs> uh, even though there are times when I kind of wish it didn't have a history at present, but no, <laughs> so, oh god, yeah, yeah they, awesome. how well, far well, have they fallen? 
Uh, well, I mean, judging by the controversy about the Academy Awards in 44, they've always been more or less the same. They've yeah. gone from one terrible owner to another, it sounds like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway, so I'm curious how much was the uh, the Blu-ray that you bought? The Blu-ray was only seven ninety nine, but the 4K was only oh, 16 So I'm, I'm, I'm tempted to give the Blu-ray to a friend and maybe get the uh, the 4K. If I'm, if I'm Look being for the three-disc uh, steelbook set. Honestly, it's worth it. <laughs> ah. <laughs> I think it's about 30 but I, I thoroughly recommend it because, like I said, the art card, the reproduction, and the steelbook case, when you see the steel cover, is just, oh, something else. Anyway. <laughs> oh, I'll, I'll have a look at that when we, uh, when we leave I the can studio. take a picture of it any time and send it to you if you want. <laughs> yeah, all right. <laughs> So yeah, awesome. Uh, right, well, that's uh, that's going to conclude our first of these uh, cinema classic uh, sort of deep dives. Hopefully, you've all enjoyed it. And like I said, maybe I've introduced a new film to you. Maybe I've just reinforced your opinion of Casablanca. And I'm very, very pleased to have said that uh, we started off with a bang with a perfect score. So yeah, thank you so much to DK for agreeing to be the the one person that joined me in this <laughs> intro. It, it's been an absolute pleasure, mate. It has. It's been fantastic. It's always good talking films with you, and uh, especially when it's a film that we adore. So, yeah, um, I'm not. Our schedule's kind of all over the place, so I'm not sure what's coming next in terms of whether it's a cult classic or a, a silver screen podcast. But I will say, if this does well enough, and I'm hoping it will, because I've got plans, the next cinema classic that we're going to be looking at will be the film Rebel Without a Cause. So. If you have any thoughts on that, feel free to let us know or let us know if there's anything you want to see covered. You can always reach us via the various social media links in the episode description. Uh, please also think about contributing to our uh, Buy Me A Coffee, at the Coffee link, uh, just to help keep the podcast running, keep the lights on. It's not uh, it's not fantastically easy or cheap running this thing. I mean, we do it because we love it, not because it's easy. Uh, we do it because we thought it was easy, as Geeky always <laughs> says. So, yeah. Is, uh, if you have anything at all you can contribute, I understand it's not necessarily always the case and the times are hard, but if you can contribute anything at all, even just a few quid, that would be very appreciated. And uh, yeah, other than that, just remains for me to say again, thanks to you, DK. Any last words? <laughs> no, no, just just have enjoyed it. And, uh, you know, if you in, out there enjoyed it, please stick around. We've Mike's got some really, really good episodes lined up. <laughs> and again, yeah, stay tuned for the regular Silver Screen podcast and the cult classics because they also have some fantastic things coming up if we do say so ourselves. So, yeah, hopefully you can join us as our channel grows and goes from strength to strength. And uh, in the meantime, hey, remember, here's looking at you, kid. <laughs> You've been listening to the Silver Screen podcast, hosted by Michael Wilson and DK, produced and edited by Mike Wilson. Additional material and behind-the-scenes sections by DK. Follow us on social media. Links to all of our social media pages can be found via the Linktree page listed in the episode's description. This podcast is part of the Mike's Podcast Network. You can listen to this and our sister podcasts on all good podcast providers by searching for Silver Screen Podcast or Mike's Podcasts. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and share far and wide. Thank you for joining us. Come back next time for more movie magic, and hopefully this can be the beginning of a beautiful friendship.